Okay. Hey, everybody. Hi. Hey, Sam. Uh, wait, hang on. We should introduce ourselves, which we always forget mm-hmm. to do. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. I'm Justine Paradise. I'm Jimmy Gutierrez. And we all work on Outside In. We do. So we're going to answer some Ask Sam questions, in particular because we got a voicemail recently that sort of annoyedly asked why we aren't answering any of the questions that are piling up in the inbox. Oh, we're no. not answering the questions? <laughs> I thought we answered the questions. Someone noticed. <laughs> That's a spicy Ask Sam. Sam, what are you doing with my questions? What is wrong with you? <laughs> why are you lazy? Why do geese make things? Does a bumblebee sneeze? Can a person eat trees? Can a polar bear freeze? Is a kidney stone kind of like a pearl in a clam? Well, I don't know. Ask Sam. I think that's the first time I've actually heard, is a kidney stone like a pearl in a clam? The answer like, to that, I think, is is yes. Oh. <laughs> no. The answer I to that, just no. heard it for the first time. Is <laughs> it for the first time? I really like, can a polar bear freeze? Yeah. Okay, here's our first question. Hey, Sam. This is Jeff calling from Northwood, and I have a question for you. What makes laundry smell nice and fresh when you hang it out to dry? Thanks. Mm. Hmm. That's a real thing. That is a real I, thing. I'll often like hang my like my quilt so that my my like bed will smell like the spring air, spring breeze, but like not the spring breeze of the laundry detergent, which mm-hmm. smells to me gives me a migraine, but like actual spring breeze. We we line dry our clothes year round, but in the winter we have to do it indoors, which sometimes just means our clothes smell like onions. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very relaxing, like, <laughs> soothing sort of, um, what is that? That's a Nordic word for, like, coziness. Oh, he- Hygge. Hygge, he- yeah. Hygge. Yeah. I would have to go back to the 80s to, like... You don't line dry? I, I don't line dry. I, I apartment live. Yeah. You you got the you could do, like, the Italian style between the buildings. I guess I could, if I trust my, my neighbors more. Why this. does why does fresh air smell good? I feel like that's the <clears> question. <throat> like, well, like it, 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 it's just intrinsic. I don't, I've never really thought about examining... Like there are flowers carried on the breeze. Well, it's like if you lived next to a dump, would you still mm. have that nice association? Is it really just the the things around your clothes that are getting on your clothes? Yeah, like city living. Like if you st- do string it Italian style, like between right. your neighbors' houses, do those clothes smell as good? Well, in Italy, they probably would, but <laughs> <laughs> but like if you're just like I don't know in Somerville in Boston or something. The, not to trash Somerville, but like let's just say it's not an Italian city. <laughs> so you can find her at Justine Paradise at Twitter. Hey, hey. hey. <laughs> so the question is: Is there something? Is it just like it smells nice outside, and so therefore your clothes smell nice, or is there something intrinsic to them going outside that makes them smell nice? All right. To figure out why line dried laundry smells so so fresh, I spoke with a gentleman named Bob Monticello. Uh, technical director of the International Antimicrobial Council. Good afternoon, Sam. We need a new name. Bob. <laughs> <laughs> We're on the right track, right? Clothes smell nice in part because the outdoors smell nice. It has everything to do with where we're at. So if we hang our laundry out to dry in a neighborhood where you have lots of fresh flowers and fragrances floating around, that's going to be trapped into the fabric. But... There's another, there's a hidden wrinkle here. This is a story of technological change, right? Which is that over the years, our washing machines have gotten more efficient, which means they're using lower temperature water. uh, And our detergents have become less caustic and therefore less environmentally harmful. But that means that they're also killing less bacteria. The ugly truth is that we never really get rid of the total bacterial load that's on our fabrics even with washing and drying. And so I'm not, I'm not like a huge fan of like pointing out that bacteria surrounds us all the time uh, because I feel like that scares people when it's not actually a scary thing. But it is true that 
your entire washing machine is actually kind of a big Petri dish. You can put in a sterile cloth into a washing machine, and it will come out just as dirty as everything else. No, no. (laughs) You might think this is fine. Then you take the clothes, you put them in the hot dryer. That will kill the bacteria. But actually, no, dryers do not get hot enough to kill bacteria. But you know what does, in fact blow apart the tiny cell walls of tiny bacterial uh, cells? UV radiation. Hey! <laughs> and it breaks down our skin, too, yeah. huh? <laughs> Funnily enough, Bob uh, is not a big fan of line drying. So while I could get him to admit that line drying does kill the bacteria on your clothes, uh, he was eager to point out that it can be tough on your fabrics as well. I think the problem with the UV degradation of the fabrics I think the problem that you're getting now with a lot of the athleisure, which is a lot of the spandex properties, you may actually see those those fabrics drying out of shape. Well, you can't have lumpy athleisure. <laughs> it's not acceptable. <laughs> so while, while we did not agree on the, the merits of line drying, we did agree on one thing, which is that the real solution is just wash your clothes less. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> What if, oh my they, God. what if they have salad dressing on them? Living on Earth is messy. Uh. <laughs> this is, a, I feel like I'm kind of a little depressed about everything I just learned, I think. <laughs> um, I mean, I that my clothes are not as clean as I thought they were. And that doing the thing that helps that breaks down my clothes faster, so then I have to buy more clothes. I will. I will say the the whole idea that like line drying is bad for your clothes to me is is like a pretty thin argument because uh, definitely what is true is that your your dryer is worse. Mm. So like UV is not great, but like high heat is is even worse. Oh yeah, Durr. Think about dryerland. Totally. Next up. Hey, my name is Brian from Hopedale, Mass. Um, I was wondering why when you're driving, do birds always, why do, why do birds always swoop in front of your car? Come on, birds. When they could easily just fly above the road and above the cars. What is with you, birds? Mm. It's something I've never understood. This actually happened to me this morning coming into work. Really? Yeah. I was coming off the highway, coming down at whatever road that is that we take to work. <laughs> and there was this pigeon that just swooped out in front of the car and it just kind of like glided very like I don't know. It was like kind of like majestically. It was majestic. It was like very like artistic, like feeling itself in the morning. And I think it was just kind of showing off, like I can fly, sucker. And you are in a car. And so you think road. you think it's narcissism is the answer. <laughs> a bit. Yeah. And like there's Dutton. It worked. Well, you know when you have like when a rabbit is running from you in the road, I think that mm. their instincts to sort of veer um, to get away from their predators might work very well when they're trying to get away from a fox, but is like the exact opposite thing that you should do around a car. I wonder if there's something like that with the bird. Like, is there some sort of instinct? Mm. Yeah. But the the beautiful thing about birds is there are so many people who love birds. And so we should talk to some of those lovely people, regardless if we think we know the answer or not. Even though birds are kind of idiots and like get in the way of our car. <laughs> <laughs> they call them bird brain for a reason. <laughs> wow. Birds, you can find Justine Paradise at Twitter. <laughs> Okay, so I called two bird-loving humans, uh, and the basic takeaway I got from both of them was like, bruh, this isn't about you. I feel like this is a common thing with people, and sometimes their interaction with nature is like, it's all about me, right? Why aren't they moving out of my way? Birds are out there to survive. 
And so the reason, a lot of the reasons why they're swooping in front of us is because they're on a mission. Did you interview a bird? Is, is that a bird? <laughs> <laughs> it's not about you. We're on a mission. <laughs> that is uh, uh, Bridget Butler, a.k.a. the bird diva, who is a freelance birder for hire in Vermont. Does she self-identify as bird diva? That is her. That's her, like, brand. Nice. Um, I also spoke with Jason Ward, uh, who's the host of a web series called Birds of North America. From He's from Atlanta. Uh, and he said, Justine, you were on the right track, actually, that they fly the way they do because of just sort of like millennia of evolution uh, that has determined that this is the best way to keep safe from predators. Uh, the higher you fly, just to make that simple trip, the more you are susceptible to aerial predators and the more energy you're expending as well by, by flying a little higher. So when you see a bird fly in front of your windshield, it's just like a, a coincidence. Like you're trying to get somewhere in the way you do it. The bird's trying to get somewhere in the way that it does it. And you two are just crossing paths. It could also be the fact that it's using using kind of like a, let's use this car so I can avoid this <laughs> hawk behind me. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's also true of predator species too. It's not just prey species. So if you think about what a highway is, it's basically a big clearing, right? And if there are trees on the sides, it's a big clearing with a nice spot to perch and look at the big clearing. And that's that's where raptors hunt. Well, we've seen multiple cases in which raptors are unfortunately dead on the side of the road with their prey either still clutched in their talons or laying nearby. Wouldn't That's an image. Yeah. And this is the sad part, is that like cars are a, a really big source of mortality for birds. It's like Estimates range from tens to hundreds of millions of birds killed each year by cars. Wait, wait, wait. I'm sorry. Tens of millions? The range is somewhere between like 80 and 300 million birds killed each year. Jesus. All right, right. Um, which, a uh, little like, take-home fact here, uh, if you've got that apple core that you throw out the window... Uh, not a great thing for wildlife, even though it is biodegradable, because that apple core... That attracts rodents, which then attracts raptors. But it's rotting in my front seat, Sam. What are you? What am I supposed to do with this rotting core? <laughs> do you mean your heart? Oh, you know me too well, Justine. All right, what we got next? My name's Kathy, and my question is that my grandfather had a rhubarb plant at his house in Portland, Maine, and that rhubarb plant got transplanted to my parents' house in Thomas, Maine, and then the rhubarb plant got transplanted to my house in Boston, Massachusetts. And I was just wondering, is any part of that rhubarb plant the same plant that was my grandfather's plant? Thank you. Oof. This is like that ship. Yeah, the ship of Theseus, which is, what is the, what is the ship of Theseus? So the, the ship of Theseus is, it's this thought experiment from, from Greek legend and philosophy where this famous hero, Theseus, goes on his journeys, comes back to Athens, and the ship gets preserved. But bit by bit, the wood starts to rot, so they replace it with new timber, new planks. But at the same time, they keep the the old boards and rebuild another ship with the original boards. But the, the question is, which is the original ship? Which is the actual ship of Theseus? Right. And so and so similarly with living things, like our cells are constantly dying and regrowing. And so it's like, when do we stop being us if we ever do? Why can't they both be the same ship? There. It's a philosophical question. It's like a thought experiment. Yeah. <laughs> I go both. Jimmy. Metaphysically. This is like beach or mountains. And it's like, why 
both. This is like a mitochondria <laughs> question, right? Yeah. Mitochondrial DNA. This is, what's I the mean, thing that like actually stays with us? The DNA is one thing, but as someone who has like a rosemary plant from my grandma, it's like that rosemary is not the same rosemary. But it's like when I look at it, it's my grandma's rosemary. Right? Yeah. It is like, the same rosemary. I'm going to come down on rosemary. yes. It's this, yeah. it, I don't even it's, need to hear the answer. It's the same rhubarb. <laughs> it's like it's that's your Kathy. Kathy. I'm talking to you. This is your family's rhubarb. <laughs> yes. We've already kind of identified the real answer, which is that, like, Kathy wants there to be this sentimental mm-hmm. family connection uh, to the rhubarb. Uh, and there's, there's, like, a pretty easy argument to make, which is that genetically it's got the same DNA, so it's the same rhubarb, uh, which does start to get us into a slightly weird space. Uh, I talked about this with Thomas Bjorkman, who teaches horticulture at Cornell. And he points out that not only does that rhubarb have the same DNA, but you could also dig up the root of that rhubarb, split it in half, mm. something called vegetative propagation, and those two resulting rhubarbs would also both technically, under this definition, still be grandpa's rhubarb. Cloning. Vegetatively propagated plants don't have to have just one body. <laughs> we kind of assume that. You know, that's sort of the familiar idea that each individual has one body, but... <gasps> Plants don't follow that rule. Neither do I. (laughs) Explain yourself. That's all I need to say. (laughs) (laughs) This gets even weirder because just imagine for a second that there was some reason that like Kathy's rhubarb was particularly superior. And so we so we started splitting it and cloning it tons and tons of times, and all of a sudden it was everywhere. Would would all of those be Grandpa's rhubarb? And if that seems like something that's unlikely to happen, uh, consider the example of Chardonnay. Right. So um, Chardonnay is a grape variety that's pretty familiar to people. It is quite old. They don't know exactly how old, but the seedling was, I think, at least seven hundred years ago that that seed germinated. So it's been around for a while, and people liked the grapes that came off that seedling, and so they ended up um, taking cuttings of it and making more grapevines. And so now there are millions and millions of Chardonnay grapevines all over the world. They're the same seedling, so it's the same plant. If that was your grandpa's grapevine, would that would they all be your grandpa's grapevine? Mostly I'm very fearful about the future of my wine drinking, if it's all... <laughs> clones <laughs> i just can i see doom um for foretold but it does like get us back to where we started right which is like if that doesn't feel right like if, if it feels like all of those would not be kathy's grandpa's rhubarb then that would also mean that after a certain amount of time that that rhubarb that's in her yeah. yard in boston also wouldn't be her grandpa's rhubarb so what is what defines grandpa's rhubarb you know is it is it sentiment like possession, you know, like if 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 my grandfather had a Chardonnay plant and it was the same as all of the other millions of Chardonnay plants, uh, what would make it mine? It was it would just be my rotting core. I mean, my heart. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like it's like, do we care about the stupid rules of philosophical consistency or do we not? Is really what it comes down mm. to for me. So really, you were never in this argument because it's it's just about it's just about love. You just got to decide. Mm-hmm. This is Kathy's grandfather's rhubarb. Yeah. All right. Who's next? Hi, Sam. Uh, my name is Stephen, and I wonder if you think we will ever reinvent the toilet. Oh, yes. It's a 
terribly inefficient machine right now. We're wasting huge amounts of drinking water. And in my work, I try and uh, turn urine into fertilizer, actually, and we are trying to reinvent the toilet. But we face a lot of pushback from people who just don't want to change the way that they do things in private. So have a great day. And that's my funny question. Is, is this like, is this a problem with big toilet? Is this what we're talking about So here? the composting toilets are a thing, I was right? Say, like, you, like, I feel like it is being reinvented. Yeah. And also, not necessarily reinvented, right? Cause does Stephen not know about composting toilets? Maybe I, that's... I bet he does know I'm about sure. composting well, he, toilets. He wants more people to use them. Uh, and and like the pushback has always been that just like people don't want to deal with their feces. We deal with enough shit on a daily basis. I hear you, Stephen. <laughs> well, and, and and like that's what he's talking about when he says pushback is that like yeah. like we have the solutions. They are low tech. How do you do composting toilets in like an apartment building? You know, I know that it can be done. Well, so there's so there's the Bullet Center in Seattle, which which is a six story building that is all composting toilets. But that but that's like high tech composters that like an actual service manages um but then there's also this thing that like that like you know so like the national parks all use composting toilets quote unquote but that but that most of them aren't maintained properly so they're not actually composting and so really what they're doing is they're just like hauling out helicopter loads of poop oh god um (laughs) and so so it's like it's like there's composting but then there's but like the composting actually has to happen and like often isn't. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like part of that answer is like, oh, well, if that sounds hard to you, that means that the way you're living is wrong. And like you, we should all be living differently, which I don't like that's the that's like part of the whole climate. Like we need to really change. Like we do need to be living differently, probably. But like it does. There's a real moralistic and um, yeah, exactly. there, there's a lot of there's a lot going on in that kind of statement. Exactly. So but like if you were to like, how could we reinvent the toilet a for like a big apartment building, how could we reinvent the toilet for a place that like maybe doesn't have like a really great functioning sewage system? Like th- those are interesting questions that I bet there are people working on it. Yeah. I don't know how to answer that. Okay, so so the standard Western environmentalist uh, answer to the question of why are toilets so wasteful is to just go to the, the composting toilet, right? Uh, there are problems, however, with the composting toilet. There are like 2.5 billion people that don't have access to sanitation right now in the world. By sanitation, do you mean plumbing? Yeah. Okay. Where this starts to become really more problematic is, uh, well, actually, let me just introduce you to Chris Buckley. He's at the University of KwaZulu-Natal in Durban, South Africa. He's going to explain why this gets problematic. One of the definitions I've come across of urbanization is if you if you were to go out and take a spade with you, go out and defecate out in the open. And if the following day you happen to stand on a piece of um, feces, and if it wasn't yours, then you know you're in a, in a peri-urban area. <laughs> <laughs> right? So take, take New York, or take any large city. Can you imagine if you take a, a high-rise building of apartments, it, people cannot manage their own excrement there. Too much doo doo. Yeah, like like each person can't be managing their own crap if they're like millions of people in a small space. The, the question then becomes: Can we redesign our whole waste stream? So for starters, Chris heads up a facility where uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has a contest underway called the Reinventing the Toilet Challenge. <laughs> Conveniently, that, yeah, nice <laughs> for the way that we our listener phrased the question. Um, 
the real problem is that there are lots of pathogens in your poo, right? And and especially <laughs> in cities, if you're talking about like an emergency situation involving power outages with lots of water, like a big storm, right? Uh, having tons of pathogens in close proximity to people is a really dangerous situation. So the Gates Foundation is trying to get researchers to create cheap off-grid toilets that actually kill the pathogens. Uh, they've got two working prototypes. They use a very small solar panel to to run what they call an electrochemical cell, which basically runs a little electrodes, creates uh, chlorine gas in a, in the space, and and kills all the pathogens that are in there. But they're they're like they exist, they work, but they're really expensive still. So it's not like they have not won the Bill Gates contest yet. But they they have started to come up with some really in- interesting solutions to to some of our wastewater problems. And so we're just going to talk like totally blue sky for a second. Um, if you could totally redesign what we do with our toilets, uh, what would it look like? Oh, are you saying that we have to come up with the ideas? No, no. Uh, <laughs> I, I have... I... <laughs> We are going to blue sky this yes, right now. <laughs> the nut that needs to be cracked to make a more rational way of dealing with our waste is separating the poo and the pee. Okay? So the pee is where all the nutrients are, right? The poo is where all the pathogens are. Pee is mostly sterile. And it's actually, it's like not too far from being a marketable product. You could like collect it and with a minimal amount of processing, turn it into fertilizer. But the problem is, it's all mixed in with the poo. Mm. (laughs) You can imagine a world. This conversation. In which we have a pee tank in every house (laughs) that gets emptied by like a service, like a truck comes however often, pumps out the pee, takes that off, turns it into fertilizer at like a plant somewhere. Which means that what would be left over is just poo and water. And uh, if you don't need to take out all the nutrients, which is like a big part of what our wastewater treatment plants do, you can totally reimagine the way that those work too. We'll reduce the footprint of the wastewater treatment works by 60%. Wow. And it turns the wastewater treatment works from being energy negative into being energy positive. This is a technology that actually already exists. It's called an anaerobic digester. They're like dairy farms and things that are, have them installed already all over the country. And basically what it does, it takes the poo, breaks it down using certain kinds of microbes, and what you get is methane, which is like natural gas, and you got it from a renewable source, and you can burn that to make heat or electricity. It is a renewable source. <laughs> I'm sorry. sorry. You are in second grade. (laughs) (laughs) It's very hard to not make lots of jokes throughout all this. Right. But like the the reason this is very sort of like theoretical and blue skies is just like, okay, so we have to mandate that everyone replaces all the toilets in all their houses, uh, that we then create an entire sort of like urine recycling industry that is going to service all of these toilets. uh, And then we have to retool all of our wastewater treatment plants. And also, by the way, we have to teach men to pee sitting down because the the splitting toilets only work if you pee sitting down. <laughs> yeah, ah. this is cool. I though I didn't know that that um that if if you did that, like how much more efficient it would get, and that that urine actually could be that useful. <laughs> well, and it's so funny because like because like the way we've got it set up now, it's like dealing with it all together. And I I just guess I didn't realize that they were. I mean, I guess I knew that they were very different. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they have different numbers associated. Yeah. <laughs> a one or a two. <laughs> I know it seems obvious. There is a part of it that if you if you wanted to do this, that would be a government designed to do it. They would mandate this. They would mandate this style of toilet, and therefore they would they would actually be mandating that like men pee sitting down. 
which you know that's that's like an interesting th- thing to think about like are governments willing to to go there we have done like massive like installing electricity in every house installing plumbing in throughout our cities we've done big stuff before yeah no we have <laughs> done big stuff before like yeah and uh, when we talk about um we talk about needing massive infrastructural change to tackle the problems that if we don't tackle the problems the world is going to melt um and so I, I mean i think that the ideas that will really be effective might sound like this like really kind of outlandish and like whoa we're could we ever do that you know maybe this isn't the one i don't know but i think the ideas will kind of sound like that all right last question hi this is carolyn and i'm calling from maine um so this summer there's been a lot of attention paid to diseases like triple e um (sighs) that can be transmitted from a bite from an infected mosquito but my question is during the middle of the day, when these species of mosquito are less likely to be feeding, what are they doing instead? Which made me wonder if mosquitoes sleep. <gasps> I love this question. Well, <sighs> right. So, so real quick, triple E uh, Eastern Equine Encephalitis is this very rare mosquito-borne illness that can like kill you dead. Uh, and Southern New England, particularly right now, is freaking out about it because there have been a couple dozen cases and and multiple fatalities. And this is part of that story of like tropical diseases coming farther north, perhaps <sighs> thanks to climate change. Uh, I just I never know how scared to be about this kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> but but triple E aside, so so Aubrey and I, my wife Aubrey and I, have argued about this since we started dating. Oh my god. <laughs> This is. Wait, we got to hear the basis of the argument. That's amazing. Well, it's just like we we. So Aubrey's parents live in a place that have a lot of mosquitoes. Uh, it's like a shady hemlock forest, and keeping the mosquitoes out of the house is just like that's all anyone is worried about all the time when you're hanging out at Aubrey's parents' house. And so she would often say, "Well, we should just wait. Like we should just wait a little while till the mosquitoes go to bed." And I would just be like. Mosquitoes don't go to bed. Like, they're little blood-sucking robots that, like, tireless and indefatigable. Like, they don't sleep. Like, humans sleep. Mosquitoes don't sleep. Well, this is maybe a chance for me to tell my wasp story. <laughs> and um, there's, so there's this one time that I was, like, trying to get the wasps to, like, go away. And um, instead, the wasp came into my house and um, <laughs> was, like, in my room. And um, so I just, like, kind of stayed awake all night with the lights on, like, watching the wasp. <laughs> but eventually kind of, like, quieted down and found a spot on the ceiling and sort of, I don't know how to explain it, but it, it got like flatter. Hmm. Um, and just, it was it was like it went into the sort of a dormancy, like sleeping. <laughs> um, and then eventually I just, I think I went away that weekend. I just like woke up that morning. I guess I slept for a little bit um, and like shut it all in, shut it away in the room and then it just died in there. So hmm. this shows me to be a terrible person, but <laughs> very a coward. Um, but I, I think that the wasp was asleep. Yeah. Well, that would mean you would be on Aubrey's side, which would be typical. (laughs) (laughs) Well. Jamie, whose side are you on? That's a good question. Um, I want them to sleep. Well, there's definitely times where there are less mosquitoes. Yeah. That's definitely true. But, but, But like, have you ever been camping? Like, there are mosquitoes out at night. Right. They come and they like buzz right next to your ear while you're trying to sleep in the tent. Yeah. Yeah, they're everywhere. I gotta, I would, I'd say no. I'd say they don't sleep. It just makes me, like, you just think they're little like robot machines then. That's yeah. how I feel. And then they die. They suck <laughs> They suck and die. But I am sure that we will find someone to answer this question because if there's one thing I know about the mosquito, that it's that because they are our apex predator, they are very heavily studied by smart people. 
We found uh, two smart people to smarten us up about mosquitoes. The first uh, is Laura Duval, who heads up a brandy new mosquito research lab at Columbia. Uh, and, and she informed me that I'm just wrong, 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 like totally wrong. Mosquitoes do sleep. Ah. <laughs> uh, they don't just rest. And there are a couple of reasons that we know this. If you sleep deprive them, if you don't let them um, sleep basically when they would normally sleep, you actually see them recover it later. What does she mean? She means that they're like teenagers. If they're staying up till three in the morning, they like sleep in afterward. I thought that was a myth that you could never catch up on sleep. Well, you try to. Yeah. <laughs> or you're just so tired that you just pass out at work. <laughs> when are, are you? Is that a, a day? I mean, is that an attack? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who you're referring you, to. <laughs> who have you seen sleeping at work? <laughs> the other bit of evidence actually comes from fruit flies, uh, but is generally believed to be applicable to other insects. And this research won the 2017 Nobel Prize. It's these fruit fly researchers who isolated the gene that uh, governs our sleep cycles, our circadian rhythms. Um, so if you feed caffeine, to fruit flies, they actually sleep less. So the same types of drugs that can change human sleep also affect their sleep. And if you give them sleeping pills, you'll see more sleep. This one then no well prize. <laughs> well, so so it wasn't just the giving of the drugs. They also found the gene that is that like if you wanted to like crisper yourself into being a night owl, like you they, they know the gene that they would do to do that. Okay. It is interesting that they would respond just as we would, I guess, yeah. to both caffeine and sleeping pills. That is, it's like, whose idea was it to feed a bunch of caffeine to mosquitoes? Like, it seems like a terrible idea. Oh or fruit God. flies. <laughs> Indeed. With all the grant money. Yeah. <laughs> what did Aubrey say when she learned about this? Uh, you know, she is a much bigger person than I am, so there's very little gloating involved. <laughs> she moved on. <laughs> the last bit of proof I want to share comes from another smart person at the University of California, Riverside. This is a gentleman who heads up another mosquito research lab named Ananda Sankar Ray. Just like humans get jet lag when they move across time zones, uh, mosquitoes too can get jet lag. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> when are mosquitoes... Taking airplanes. I was wondering because <laughs> they have they have so many places that they research mosquitoes all around the world. They're like flying them all over the place. Oh my god, that's yeah. amazing. <laughs> <laughs> they get off the plane. They're like, I need I need a couple hours. Yeah. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Hold on. No caffeine. Not 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 yet. So the whole source of this confusion though comes from the fact that the not all mosquitoes are larks or night owls. Uh, the the 80s mosquitoes, 80s aegypti that spread Tripoli e and Zika. They sleep at night and then take a little siesta in the middle of the day uh, versus the Culex mosquitoes, which are the ones that, that give us like West Nile virus. They are nocturnal. So there are mosquitoes up at all hours. They're just different species. I mean, they sleep, right? But not in a way that's helpful. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't it kind of nice to know that? Well, there were like a couple things that I found about this that, that made me feel a little more sympathetic toward mosquitoes. The other is that uh, both so so female mosquitoes need to drink your blood to get the protein to make eggs, but the rest of the time, both males and females just sip nectar out of flowers. Yeah, mm. I mean that's <laughs> you guys are trying. <laughs> no, no, I think that, I think it's lovely. I think. It's...
Outside In was produced this week by me, Sam Evans-Brown, with help from Jimmy Gutierrez, Justine Paradise, and Taylor Quimby. Our executive producer is Erica Janik. Maureen McMurray is the director of vegetable-based thought experiments. If you'd like to get your question on Ask Sam, call the hotline. The number is 1-844-GO-OTTER. You can also record a voice memo and send it to outsidein at nhpr.org. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Thank you.